Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the World Changing Women podcast. I'm your host, Nina Bernardin. On this podcast, you'll hear from mission-driven women entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and changemakers who are transforming business as usual. These pioneering women are using the power of business to move the needle on the social issues that we all care about, like gender equity, racial equity, climate change, and so many more. I was experiencing real bias. I mean, plain and simple. And, you know, I wasn't prepared to stick around for more of it. I'm so excited to share this amazing and timely interview with Cheryl Conti. Cheryl is an author and serial tech entrepreneur. She co-founded and sold her first company attentively and is now the CEO and founder of the mission-driven digital agency, Do Big Things. On top of that, Cheryl is the author of Mechanical Bull, How You Can Achieve Startup Success, and she's an award-winning political blogger. Seriously, Cheryl is nonstop. We recorded this conversation on June 3rd in the midst of national protests of the murder of George Floyd. In our conversation, we talk about systemic racism in business and building diverse and equitable workplaces. This is World Changing Women. Thank you for listening. To get started here, can you tell us a bit about your founding story, your journey as an entrepreneur, and what mission has kind of drove you into the kind of business that you founded, sold, and founded again? Well, when you look at the businesses that I've founded, and yes, I have the sickness of being a serial entrepreneur that I just, you know, I have ideas and I've been very, very fortunate to find partners, you know, who wanted to join me and team members want to join me in those crazy ideas. And, uh, you know, in some cases to find, you know, investors um, to, you know, were, were down for uh, supporting uh, those crazy ideas, but you know, really at the at the heart of you know, and when you look at all of those things, whether it's Jack and Joe politics, which was my um, political blog that focused on um, pop culture and politics from a black bourgeoisie perspective, um, that was once a really popular blog. You know, whether it's uh, you know, fission strategies and now do big things, which are digital agencies that serve causes and campaigns that I founded, or attentively which is the uh, SaaS tech startup that uh, became the first um, tech startup with a black female founder on board myself to be acquired by a NASDAQ company. When you look at all of those uh, endeavors, you know, the ribbon that underpins them is service, right? Is, you know, how can we be of service? How can we use technology, you know, and digital transformation, a trend that's happening to actually help create better outcomes for more people and support the people who are working on that every day. So, you know, that's really been, um, you know, my focus. And look, I think that, you know, one of the the things that's really exciting to me about uh, Attentively, um, which is a uh, social uh, marketing automation and social listening tool, is that it was a, uh, a next economy, a new economy startup, a social impact startup that was acquired by a social impact corporation. And, you know, it shows that the future is possible. And, you know, one of the things that we were keen to do, even though we were small, we were very visible in our space in the nonprofit sector because we were a female led uh, company and female tech led uh, startup, um, you know, with of course, you know, a, a minority founder, 
you know, we wanted to show that you can invest in women, you can invest in black women, and you can make money. And that is, I think, the biggest thing that's, you know, really missing from some of these conversations. You know, I live in Silicon Valley, you know, and that I'm sure that helped me to, you know, find investment. But we're in this situation where, you know, people have great ideas for products, for services, for apps that can make a really big difference in people's lives. And, you know, they, they're not getting the investment they need to bring that to life. And that ultimately means that we are hindered, we are, we are slowed in creating that next generation economy, you know, that's going to sustain, you know, our nation and our world. So from there, like, I'm really curious about what your process was, like, how was your personal journey of building, building both companies? What was that experience like for you? Oh, absolutely. Terrifying. It's terrifying. It's terrifying to start your own business. Uh, but, you know, to a certain extent, you know, the first business, um, which is Vision Strategy, is a digital agency working with causes and campaigns that was started because I was passed over for a promotion. At, I, I had been recruited out to San Francisco to work for a pretty big multinational PR company. And I drew up a plan for, look, you know, I need to hire a couple of people you know, here's, you know, how, but, you know, if we, if we do the things that I'm recommending, including, you know, hiring some more people, I'm working like 18 hours a day, you know, I, I think we can bring in a million dollars of revenue. I was already bringing in a hundred, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue. And, you know, I was passed over for a promotion that had been promised in my offer letter. And in that moment, it was just like, you know, it was, it was like someone was like, boop, you, you were here and you need to be here. I, is that if you're not going to promote me, I'm going to resign because I just, you know, I added up in my head, you know, if I can bring in a fraction, a fraction of the amount of money that I have brought in for this organization, just for me, I might be okay. And I was willing to make that bet. And, you know, I get it. I mean, now I wasn't a parent then I get, especially if you're a parent, you know, that that you know, is a, an even more terrifying direction to take. But, you know, I was experiencing real bias. I mean, plain and simple. And, you know, I wasn't prepared to stick around for more of it. I was willing to stand up for myself. So, you know, literally, you know, I ended up leaving, you know, that day. And I put out a tweet. I mean, the power of a network, I put out a tweet and I said, hey, I suddenly seem to find myself available. <laughs> Who wants to work with me? And I actually got a lot of incoming. You know, I was relieved, but also pleasantly surprised that people wanted to work with me. And, and you know, one of the things that came in was the now husband of my business partner, then um, Ross Lemieux, who said, hey, you know, my girlfriend is also doing kind of an indie consulting thing. And I think that you two would maybe have a really interesting collaboration and you know we worked on a project together and it was magical we very much completed each other and uh you know we built from there but you know from the start i mean we had very little startup capital i mean i had about ten thousand dollars in the bank she had about 10k and i was like look if we can't get some clients in this month i'm gonna have to go out and find a job but fortunately, you know, we were able to do that. And, you know, we were able to go from two people to 10 within a year. We made that million dollars in revenue within that year, that first year, you know, and, and, you know, what was even more rewarding about that was that I was doing the work that meant the most to me. And it's not that I didn't enjoy helping to sell 
laptops or soap or football tickets, but being able to work with and provide services to nonprofits, tax services to nonprofits and consulting to nonprofits and causes, you know, that were meaningful, that remain meaningful, that just brought a lot of fulfillment to my daily work. So then from there, you know, Fission, one of the trends that we were seeing in our space was that people were launching startups and they, and they weren't content with, these are the tools that we have. It was very much a, a time of innovation and saying, look, if the tools don't exist that we need, we can build these tools. And that was basically what we saw in the corporate marketing world, you know, some of the influencer engagement and marketing automation tools that were out there. And yet they were at a price point that was beyond, you know, what most nonprofits could stomach. And they weren't really tailored for what the kinds of activities that nonprofits are engaging in. And so we decided to just build that. Now, you know, at the time, I didn't know that 0.006%, so basically statistically $0 of seed capital or venture capital went to Black female founders. Didn't know that, fortunately, but, you know, found out real quick that even though, you know, I had run a, a fairly successful political blog, that I had been on CNN and on, you know, in the New York Times, and even though, you know, we had built a, you know, a company with multi-millions of dollars of revenue that I was going to have a hard time, you know, and I was really the lead fundraiser for that first round. And yeah, it was really tough to have people even just take my calls. And then when I would get in, you know, to do, say, a demo or talk to a potential investor, literally, I sat across from a person who, uh, you know, I gave him a demo of the software and talked about, you know, the market opportunity, et cetera. And, you know, this was a fund that's whole raison d'etre was to find people like me, okay, and invest in non-traditional founders, okay? Like just so, and he looked at me and he said, well, this is a really important tool and I can, I definitely can see, you know, how important it would be, but I don't know if you, I don't, I'm not sure if you're the person who could actually take this, to, to, to market. And yeah, I mean, people said stuff to my face, Nina. Okay. Like during the startup process that in some ways, I think I'm still emotionally processing. I mean, writing my book, Mechanical Bull, How You Can Achieve Startup Success was part of that process of both catharsis, but I mean, I really wrote the book that I wish that I had had, you know, when we started out in part because, you know, after we had sold attentively and I'd, you know, been doing some public speaking, this friend sat me down and said, look, Cheryl, literally more people have been to the moon than have done what you have done. And you have an obligation to help other people reach that success with their businesses. And I'll tell you, it's not easy. I mean, I I had a, a long conversation with the leader of an angel fund that focuses on women, you know, and and female startup investments. And, you know, she said, look, you know, I've worked really hard, you know, and our team has worked really hard to weed out as much of the bias in our process as possible. And we did a really in-depth and, you know, because we really wanted to fund black and brown women, wanted to, you know, to make sure that we were filling out, you know, that part of our portfolio. And, you know, we, we did it. We were able to do it until it got to people signing checks. It came to people signing checks. Like that's when we, that was, you know, the place where we had the, the biggest problem. And she said, you know, it takes us about an average of seven contacts to get a white female funded. It takes us 50, five, zero, 50 
50 contacts to get a black woman funded. Even if everything else, you know, all things being equal, you know, like they've got a successful business, they've got a, you know, a good business plan, you know, like solid team, et cetera, like 50, like that's what I was up against. That's insane. That's what, that's what systemic, if people, you know, cause I've been hearing people being like, well, what is systemic racism? Like what is institutional racism? Like that, that is institutional racism. What takes someone seven contacts, and that's a lot, you know, for white guys, it's probably like two. <laughs> I don't know what the actual number is, but it's probably like two or three, right? So like white women, okay, like I get it. I feel your pain, I'm here for you, but like know that as a black woman, it would have been what? I mean, I'd have to do the math. It would be seven times harder, okay? Seven times harder to do the same thing that you are trying to do, okay? So this is not the way to be, let me tell you, can I tell you a story? Can I tell you a quick story? Yeah, please. There is a, uh, people have probably heard of the real McCoy, right? And, you know, the real McCoy, that phrase is actually about a real person, Elijah McCoy, who invented this railroad, this this uh, rail railway part. I'm not a rail, I'm not a, a rail technician, so forgive me, but, you know, invented this thing that, this technology that helped locomotives use less fuel and go further faster a huge deal in the late 1800s. And yet, because he was Black, it took him 20 years to get the funding that he needed. And yet, here was this transforma transformational product that, you know, was so important. And there are so many knockoffs that people would say, well, I need the real McCoy, okay? I need, like, the technology, because this is like a piece of crap and not, like, very high quality. Now, imagine how much further we would be as a country if, his groundbreaking technology had just been funded and fully funded faster, right? I mean, that's what we're up against. Like that is what is holding our nation back because we're not being willing to draw from the genius of our people wherever it is, whatever package it comes in. And that is the future folks. Like we can't in, a, in an America that like it or not is going to change. Okay, it's demographics. Like this is happening right now. Like there is already a majority minority in terms of the children of America. Okay, so this that America is coming. That means that you know we have to have an America that is willing to embrace genius and innovation no matter what package it comes in, because that is how we continue to be a strong and prosperous nation. Well, I can't believe I've never known that story about the real McCoy. Dude, it's pretty messed up. Like, seriously. Yeah. So I like to tell that story just because, and look, you know, I mentioned earlier the 1968 Kerner Commission report. So in 1968, Lyndon B. Johnson, the then president, you know, wanted to understand the unrest that was roiling in American cities, particularly in Black neighborhoods. And the Kerner Commission summarized what they thought was going on. And I'm gonna read that excerpt to you right now, because I think it's important for the moment that we're living in, in general in 2020, which is, quote, bad policing practices, a flawed justice system, unscrupulous consumer credit practices, poor or inadequate housing, high unemployment, voter suppression, and other culturally embedded forms of racial discrimination all converge to propel violent upheaval on the streets of African-American neighborhoods in American cities, North and South, East and West. It's not in African-American neighborhoods anymore, okay? It's in your city, 
right now and it will be in your city until things start to change and you know one thing that people don't know about 1968 was that there was a deadly flu pandemic going on we don't talk much about it because there was a whole bunch of other really? stuff going on in 1968 yeah i mean it wasn't as deadly obviously it wasn't like like the coronavirus it was a different situation but it was still bad like it was a still a pretty bad flu pandemic with two waves the second worse than the first. So that's something that people really, you know, your business people, you need to plan for that. Okay, you need to plan that just like in 1918, just 1968, that the next wave of this will be much worse. And therefore, the inequities that were exposed then, that people are re-experiencing now and that are, are that, that have been shown to us in bald relief are going to result in people asking a lot of questions and demanding better systems and better policies. And it's like burning to ask, what, what do you tell yourself when you're experiencing these, when you've experienced that kind of like overt racism and when you learn these kinds of statistics? I, I hope that that's an appropriate question to ask. Sure. And you know, because, you, you know, you, you haven't experienced that because it's like, yeah, what is that like to just like have to deal with systemic racism that is impacting your daily life because here's the thing about racism and sexism folks is that it is illogical it is irrational it distorts normal processes like that's you know it's not just a moral thing okay it just absolutely like warps what would be just a normal person trying to go through their day um right so all of a sudden you know you think that you're just like having a normal day and all of a sudden it's like oh racism okay well now i gotta deal with that in addition to getting a new toaster like i'm trying to get a new toaster and this shop owner is following me around the store because they're worried i'm gonna shoplift like i'm just here to get a toaster okay like imagine that imagine like that's your lived reality that you're just like i'm trying to give you business like i'm just trying to and like somehow this became some other thing. So that's what it, in some ways that's what it's like where you're like I'm I'm doing my thing and then all of a sudden it's like boop, you know there's some kind of like weird moment where where you have to recalibrate basically you have to recalculate and be like oh so in the case of trying to get investment for attentively you know I shifted gears and was just like okay you know like if someone is clearly not responding or, you know, I'm getting some kind of weird, you know, signal distortion, I just on to the next. Like I can't spend a lot of time, like emotional time processing. I don't want to talk to you. I'm not wiping up any, I'm not going to make you feel better about the fact that this, like I'm moving on. Like, you know, and so like, that's how I got to apparently that 50 people, you know, to like, till I got to, you know, it's just like, I just, I'm just going to keep going. Like, I'm just going to keep working through and I have confidence and I would say, you know, if you are an entrepreneur or you are a leader within a company, I mean, that's what it takes. Like it takes to a certain extent, like a lot of confidence in yourself and in, in, in things turning eventually. It just means that you have to keep showing up. And that's one thing to know about black people. Okay. Like we will just keep showing up. Like that's who we are. Like we're not going away can't get rid of us. So you might as well, given that you know we're going to keep coming, you might as well just, you know, invest in us. And like, then we can all make money together or hire us, hire us beyond the, the junior level, hire us to be leaders and senior and therefore help you make better decisions that then mean you don't have to board up your store because of the racism and people's reaction to the racism. 
you know, in looking up do big things, your current company, that's part of your strategic advantage is that you have, I believe I read 70% people of color on your uh, team. We are or? 70% women. We are 50% women. people of color. And yeah, you know, part of it was strategic, right? Of, you know, given the causes and campaigns that we work on, what we tell our clients is that, you know, we're better able to use the new narrative and new tech that's needed in this new era today because we are those voices. We are immigrants, okay? So we can talk about immigration. We are people of color, so we can talk about racial and ethnic discrimination. We are people who have experienced gun violence. One of our clients is Everytown for Gun Safety, and so we can bring a very different lens. We are mothers, so you know that means that we respond to you know issues related to women in a different way, you know, whether it's climate change or what have you. And so, you know, we believe that that gives us a strategic advantage in that we understand the audiences that our clients are trying to reach because we are those audiences, right? We are those people. We come from those communities. But also, yeah, you know, unashamedly, we want to provide a safe place for female and technologists who happen to be people of color who want to work on the next economy. We want to provide a home for those people who want to do that. And one of the, we're diverse in a lot of ways, not just gender, not just um, ethnicity, but also geographically. We have people in the Midwest, we have people in the South, on the East Coast, on the West Coast. We have people who are, you know, their families have been in this country for centuries. We have people who are first generation immigrants. And we have designers, you know, in terms of what people do. We have designers, we have developers, we have writers, you know, we have people who also bring a lot of diversity just in how they see the world and, you know, the, the talents that they bring to the table. So that's something that we're passionate about and that we believe just makes sense. You know, any broker, right? If it's some, for those of you, you know, who have brokers or maybe you handle your own investments, anything that will tell you, you know, diversity brings you strength. And all of the data that we've seen, I, and I know this is a sophisticated audience, I know you guys get this, but just so you have talking points to give to other people, all of, this, all of the studies show that the more diversity that you have in your organization, particularly in its leadership, means more profits, better productivity, better brand, you know, support. And so if you want to make money, like if you want to make money, out there. Do you, do you like money? You want to make money. A good way to make money is to really invest in diversity in all of its forms in, in your team. It's beautiful that you experienced this and you've now created like a different paradigm for your company. Did you ever come up with those same hurdles that like you hear people saying like, oh, I couldn't find anybody or I'm just trying to find the most qualified person for my role? You know, some of those other excuses for why people don't have diverse teams. Did you come up against some of those hurdles yourself? And how did no. you navigate those? No, no, it's actually just not that hard. You know, I, I do think that what's, you know, here's the answer. <laughs> no, I'm not to interrupt you, but it's like, no, it wasn't that, it's not that hard if you're trying. You know, what I will say though, is that, you know, because, you know, I'm a person of color, you know, it's easier for me to, right, reach into communities. And, you know, part of the issue for a lot of white people, I could be misquoting, but that, you know, something like 70% of white people don't have a black friend or they don't know someone personally 
who's a person of color. And so that then, you know, and that's part of the, you know, problem that white people need to fix, okay? It's part of what's going on, but white people need to work on white people, okay? And part of that, if you're a white person listening to this, like examine your network and your colleagues, your friends, your family. Like if you don't actually personally know a person of color, make that an agenda item. Okay, like that's your new, that your new goal is how do I build my network such that it's large enough that it, when I go looking for a diverse team, that it's less hard for me. But, you know, bottom line is there are so many resources now, okay, like it's not that hard. And you can even just be very clear in your messaging, like we're looking, you know, for a diverse team. We welcome minorities to apply. We welcome women to apply. We welcome immigrants to apply. Like throw open, like change the energy, you know, and change that energy from, you know, we want the most qualified because the most qualified is often a, like a code I have found, even if people don't intend it, it's, it's code for implicit bias. And I will say, you know, it's been an issue at times with internal staff who, you know, they are not our current staff, but you know, sometimes you have people who even even though they are well educated on these issues, you know, they still can't turn off their own filters. Where you know, someone you know like me had to step in and say, "This person is qualified," and I think we're going to hire them. Like I don't understand what the issue here is, but like we're we're going to go ahead and hire them because they're qualified. So you know, I think you have to actually be that person because it's not like people are going to go around saying the N word right or you know in some way saying like oh we don't want immigrants or we don't want someone who has a an accent or an inflection like you know it may be an implicit thing that someone just has blinders on or it may be you know just a subtle way in which they're behaving where wow for some strange reason the only people we're interviewing are white people like be that person don't assume that it's okay don't assume that people see their bias in action. Be the person who speaks up and says, you know what, I would like to actually make sure we're interviewing some people of color for this role or some women for this role. And let what, what do we need to do? And maybe you do have to work a little harder. Maybe you have to reach beyond your safe networks, right? But is it worth it? Again, I'm gonna to return to not just the moral imperative, but the economic imperative. Do you want to make more money? Okay, because if you want to make more money, then you're going to put in the time and the effort to make sure you have a diverse workforce. Well said. Thank you for that. When you look back at the beginning stages of starting the businesses that you've started, is there any advice you'd give yourself or anything you would have done differently? Oh, boy. Any advice that, well, I'll you our first <laughs> You have to year, narrow it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, our first year, we worked so, so hard. And, you know, what, that's one thing, and I, I do mention it in, in the book as well, is that, look, you know, the launching a business is very much the American dream, so much so that we, you know, America elected a person who, for many people, embodies that American dream of successful entrepreneurship, whether or not that's a somewhat constructed reality, that's up to you, but all, all I'm saying is, you know, that's a, that's a real part of, you know, that person's appeal right, to a lot of people is that, you know, he epitomizes the American dream of, of successful entrepreneurship. And, you know, the reality of the situation is, is if you are dreaming of, you know, being your own boss and, you know, working from, from home in your pajama pants, the reality of that is, you know, when you launch a business, 
not you go from having maybe one or two bosses to having you know 10 100 a thousand a million new bosses those are your customers and clients okay so imagine that <laughs> and if you're working from home in your pajamas it's because you haven't stopped working long enough to put on pants and you also can't afford an office so you're working from home so, so if that still sounds appealing to you y'all you know like go ahead and launch that new business. So, you know, what I would say is, you know, look, it, it, after the first year, you know, we knew the statistic very well about um, American small businesses. And after the first year, my business partner and I sat down and said, look, this is not sustainable. Like, I am tired and I can't go. So like, we need to actually build in a day of rest. Like, we just have to take off and we actually exchanged. I think she took off Saturday and I took off Sunday. So we were still working, but like we just, you know, and, and I would say, you know, to anyone, you know, listening, you know, the, the human spirit is infinite. We can do anything. We have literally lit the darkness, right? We created, you know, light, like we, you know, there's nothing we can't do. However, the human body is finite and you can only achieve the infinite if you are willing to respect the finite. And, you know, I would say building in that, it's great to have a business that is about creating sustainability in our world, but you need to make sure that you are finding ways to be sustainable. And I would say, I wish that I had, you know, I wish that it hadn't taken such a very difficult first year of business for me to take a step back and say, okay, what, what do I need that's going to support me? And what do I need? And I would say any business owner, you know, the more, especially as you are launching, especially if you have kids, um, you know, the more that you can, as you're launching your business, really think through what is my personal support system? Who's going to watch this baby when I just need to spend an hour on Sunday resting? Like, that's very real, you know, or, you know, who's going to help, you know, bring me some food when I need it, even if that's something you set up for yourself, it is like food, you just, you've just created something that food just shows up, you know, every Wednesday, you've automated that, like, you know, really think through, you know, how am I going to sustain the physical plant, because, you know, it takes, you know, it's a, it's really challenges you, which is part of the excitement, right? Part of the excitement of launching your own business is, you know, really, you know, pushing yourself to that, to that very edge of what am I capable of? What can I do? You know, what, what can I achieve and contribute in this world that no one's ever seen before? That's part of what's exciting. But even as you're doing that, you know, that, you know, achieving, you know, that which has never been achieved before, you know, does have a physical cost to it. And the more you can build support around yourself, you know, to mitigate that, the more successful you're going to be. So what are those support systems for you, Cheryl? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, my family, of course, you know, some great friends, you know, I have a caretaker for my son, which is very important because I have to go to work. Uh, I, um, yeah, absolutely, you know, have no hesitation of being like, I am going to DoorDash this. Like, I'm not, you know, I need to order food and it needs to come to the house from Instacart. Like, you know, don't, like, I don't feel ashamed about it. You know, like, it's fine. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, am taking care of myself physically. I try to hydrate. I, I go to bed early. You know, one of the things, there's this great book called The Way We Are Working Is Not Working. And I remember seeing it uh, in an airport, 
Um, and I was literally, I had my laptop open, I had my iPad open, I had my phone, I was on the phone, I looked up, I was like, oh, I feel like this is like literally for me right now, like this ad for this book is for me. But one of the takeaways- I'm just That's a perfect visual, I'm like- <laughs> We've all been there where you're like, mm-hmm. oh, whoops. So, you know, in that gate and, you know, afterwards, you know, reading the book, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, one of the big takeaways from for me was, uh, you know, just again, respecting the human body and the way that humans work. And, you know, there are two takeaways. One is, uh, you know, human beings are meant to work in sprints. We're not meant, we're physically not really built to sit in front of a computer all day for eight hours a day. Okay. And that's not where your big epiphanies come from. Okay. That's not where you know, your, your best productivity. And so, you know, if you build in, if you, if you actually build in like 90 minute sprints, you're actually going to find that you get more done in less time. Similarly, you know, get it, you know, getting rest, like, you know, if you aren't getting, if you are an adult human and you are not getting seven to eight hours of sleep a night, you might as well take a teaspoon of arsenic a day. Okay, like it will catch up with you. You either find balance in your life or balance will find you, my friend. And, you know, I make an appointment. I treat it like any other appointment in my book, which is, you know, here is, you know, I actually like measure time. Like if I go to bed at this time, how does that add up to seven hours? And if I'm on the road, sometimes when you're traveling and speaking and going to conferences, you know, you sometimes lose sleep. Meditation, uh, a good solid five minutes or so of really high quality meditation is worth an hour of sleep. And so I meditate. Meditating is a really, oh yeah, meditating is a really amazing brain hack that again, you know, gives you that, um, you know, uh, possession and poise and epiphanies that then actually make you more successful as a leader, you know, as a business person. So I would say those are the the biggest things for me is, you know, uh, breaking up my day. And I actually, you know, my assistant puts in breaks. I'm like, look, after, you know, 90 to 120 minutes, I have to go do something else. Like I just, you have to build, you can't just book me all day. So I book in, like, it's just like, it's like a meeting, like here is the time that I go take a break or I take a walk or get lunch or go to the bathroom. Uh, But that half an hour, then, you know, I have restorative energy to then bring my best, like my most powerful self to that next set of meetings, right? And so if you start to think of yourself that way and treasure yourself, right? Like I'm, what I'm asking you to do is like put yourself first so that then you can actually be your best self with the people you're trying to serve. Uh, I was taking so many notes and I'm going to put some of these, some of these links in the show notes, like your HBR article and the way we're working isn't working. So we're coming, we only have a few more minutes left before I know that you're going to want to take a break and get away from this computer screen. So that said, I would love to round this out with the question of two-parter. If you're children or child were to come up and when they're older, want to start a business and asked you for some advice, what would be like your top two nuggets of wisdom for them? And following that up, like what is really giving you hope right now? Oh boy. Well, let's go back to hope. Um, But yeah, you know, if Colmy, my son is Colm, he he is three years old. And if he came to me, you know, some 20 years from now and said, mama, I'm, I'm ready to start that business. I mean, the first thing I would say is how big is your network? 
you know, I wouldn't have been able to start my businesses without a network. Damn sure couldn't have kept them without that network. Okay, so, you know, that network is going to really sustain you in ways that you can't possibly imagine. So build up your LinkedIn, build up your Facebook and your Twitter and your Instagram, like that is real power. And also, how is your business going to change the world? What about your business is different from any business that has ever come before? Even if it's a franchise, if he came to me and said, you know, I want to, I want to start a footlocker. Be like, okay, how is your footlocker going to be more awesome and amazing than any footlocker that has ever locked foots? Okay, that's what I would want to know. And you know, it doesn't have to be an earth shattering answer, but I think thinking in that way, like starting to put yourself mm -hmm. in that mindset of like, this isn't going to be mediocre, like, I'm going to deliver excellence for my clients and my customers, you know, and what does that look like in very both strategic, you know, and practical ways is going to make a really big difference and give you an edge. Love that. And what is giving you hope right now? Oh, boy. Gospel music. You know, there's a great Black Lives Matter playlist on Spotify that I cannot more highly recommend. There are some great jams on there. They're all very hopeful and inspirational. And, you know, I think that, uh, you know, that's giving me a lot of life right now. I just saw that on on Spotify yesterday. So yeah, I'm going to have to tune it. into that today. It's really good. They really, I can tell they thought it out. You know, there's a, a real diversity of artists on there. And um, the music is really beautiful. Some things that you might recognize and maybe some new songs that you haven't, but music in general. Also, I have this uh, interactive art sort of display in my house called the mural, M-E-U-R-A-L. And the mural, you know, like it's basically like they have playlists of art. You use your app to then, you know, upload to the mural. And, you know, art is something that is eternal it's timeless, it's outside, just like music, right? It's outside of time. And, you know, in a time that we're living through that is changing, it's tumultuous, it's uncertain, to be able to rest in that moment that is timeless, which is also what meditation is about, you know, has brought me a lot of joy and comfort. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for this. This has been a lot of fun. Just thank you. Thank you for well, your authentic you. story and sharing it with us. Thank you, Nina, for having me. And thank you for listening. Thank you so much to Cheryl Conti for joining us on the pod. And a big thank you to Story Pop for producing our theme music. This show was edited and produced by me, Nina Bernardin. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review. It really helps us out. And follow us on Twitter, at WCWPod. That's at WCWPod. We'll see you next time.